Welcome to another edition of Reinvent the Future of Money. My guest today is Olaf Ransom, also known as the Banker's Plumber, a man who spent the first part of his career at institutions like Goldman Sachs, Credit Suisse, and Nomura, ensuring that their financial pipes flowed smoothly. He's since transitioned to advising a new breed of financial market infrastructure at the intersection of traditional finance and digital currencies. This includes Finality and RTGS Global. Today we'll be speaking about liquidity, why it matters even if it's not always the sexiest topic, and what the future holds for regulated digital currencies like stablecoins, central bank digital currencies, and the hot new entrant on the scene, commercial bank deposit tokens. Reinvent is brought to you by Millicent Labs, building the financial infrastructure of tomorrow, where the power of Web3 meets the simplicity of fiat. Learn more at millicent.io. So, Olaf, thanks very much for joining me today. Um, great to have you here. It's been a while. Super. Real pleasure to, to do this. Um, I think we got the timing just about right here. Liquidity has been uh, a topic um, in the last weeks, and perhaps more so than it ever is. Um, you referred to sort of sexiness at the beginning. You know, all this plumbing stuff, it just ain't sexy. Uh, hasn't been, and a lot of times people take it for granted. So it, this is wonderful to... Uh, or, what would you say, exercise the mind on things we need to do in and around the space. Yeah, I think that's very well put. And uh, I mentioned in the intro that you were with Credit Suisse for about a decade. I think uh, it was in pretty good shape when you left. So what happened? Uh, I think over the years, there has been some consistently bad management that has led to, to losses, uh, and I, I, I would say even when I was there, there were there was a series of things where you did wonder, you know, w- was this, you know, if you think back to the Pac-Man game where you avoided the ghosties, I think the Credit Suisse game would have banana skins, but in the Credit Suisse version, you try and slip up on the banana skins, um, and you did have the impression sometimes like, geez, you know, how much trouble can you really get into? But actually, very early on uh, in my CS times, we started thinking about liquidity. Um, I had the good fortune to be appointed the global program manager for all things CLS, which is where we now settle our FX and we kind of take it for granted. It's a thing um, and a very vital piece of our plumbing. And very early on, we looked at what was set up and we had two parts of Credit Suisse. We had the Swiss part and the non-Swiss part. And as in all large organizations, funnily enough, the domestic part and the non-domestic part didn't really like each other very much. And this was investment banking. So, you know, it, it was a little bit exacerbated, but I'm sure you could tell the same tales of bankers of Deutsche Bank in Frankfurt and the bankers of Deutsche Bank in London. Nothing particularly unusual. We looked at the way the cash moved and the Swiss bit made its decisions about what banks it wanted to use as correspondent banks. And the non-Swiss bit made decisions. They kind of talked to each other, but it effectively ended at, you know, you and I having a conversation and you go, hey, I like Citibank for euros and I'm in Switzerland, I'm bad now, I like Deutsche Bank for euros. And I go, hey, Kenny, your choice sucks. And you tell me that my choice sucks, but we don't have to agree. So we just agree to disagree. And we were looking at this with CLS coming along, went, guys, this isn't going to work. We're going to have liquidity all over the place. So even as long ago as 2002, we we're talking about uh, liquidity and even as long as 2003, collateral management, how do you move collateral around the world globally? This was a theme. This, this I can point you to FIP working group papers on on stuff in the area. So liquidity is not new. Um, where did Credit Suisse come a cropper? They came a, at least in part a cropper because people removed assets of both kinds. So they removed cash, which is unsecured receivables in a in a bankruptcy, unless it unless it's insured. And they also removed assets, which is a bit of a double whammy because if the assets go, you're not making any money. You can't pay for all the fixed costs um, that are there. Um, So there was definitely a bit of a retail problem in Switzerland Mm -hmm. with with money flowing out. Um, I'd seen various reports that said over and above what happened in the last quarter of 2022, in the week when things started to get very shaky, they were losing 10 billion Swiss a day on a deposit base of about 240, 230, 240, somewhere around there. That's a lot of money per day. And I, I, I yeah. was doing a bit of research for an article on liquidity that I'm writing that you kindly commented on. When Northern Rock was going under in 2007 in the UK, they were losing 8 billion 
or something in deposits. But you know, the UK is eight, nine times the size of Switzerland. You know, same with mm-hmm. same with SVB. So the Valley Bank had lots of money going out too, but relatively yeah, think- not in those sizes. So I think they had a retail 40, 40 billion in one day, maybe SVB, I think I've heard. And yeah. uh, but, okay. I think the, the US is how much bigger than Switzerland, please? Yeah, of uh, course. Yeah. Okay. Um, so in both cases, it was retail. In both cases, I think internet speed has played a role. You know, it, yeah. If you go back to the economic textbooks and read about runs on banks or what's the film? It was a wonderful life, I think. It's people queuing up in front of the bank, which is a whole Northern Rock thing as well. But now it's like whoosh. You know, the Bush Telegraph works real quick, and it's just a giant echo chamber. So that's the retail side. And then it, it feels like um, they also had a big institutional problem that people were not uh-huh. helping them fund. So you know, Credit Suisse is relying on being able to swap Swiss to dollars, Swiss to pounds, um, and people weren't stepping up to do those trades with them. And so I my and I I know this for sure. I was talking with the treasurer of a bank in the southern hemisphere and I better be really, really careful about how general I make this. So it's not clear exactly who this <laughs> is. But the comment uh from this particular corner of the world was having dealt with credit Suisse for eight months, toxic, didn't want to deal with them. And this is even before uh-huh. the crash. So you've got the wholesale markets um, growing up, and as the old joke goes, if the market thinks you're a liquid, well, guess what? You're a liquid. Um, and then I think you had another factor that played into that, which is a sort of global factor that banks were on shaky ground generally after Silicon Valley Bank, Signature, Silvergate, um, that they all had to uh, lock down and problems at First Republic and all the rest of it that were there. So. My sense is that certainly the, the, the Brits and the Yanks had looked at what was going on at Wafer and, geez, there's a chance you can't settle your trades next week because you need so uh-huh. many dollars. And I think they've rung up the Swiss and gone, you know, guys, if you don't sort this out by Sunday night, we're all going to have a, a gargantuan problem. And to try and put gargantuan into context, in those early days at Credit Suisse, I was there when there was a very small mistake that CLS in fact, the only time, to my knowledge, it's ever happened, where some trades didn't settle very early into the process. Uh-huh. Minor technical thing went wrong. Computer did what the computer would do and just shut the day. We ended up some 30-odd thousand unsettled transactions. Money in the wrong place, all over the place. Only 39 banks in what? It took us six months to sort that problem out. Six months. CLS now doesn't wow. really... CLS now does a million trades a day, right? So if you can't settle trades, it's really, really, really serious stuff. So I have a Uh sense that, and this is mosaic theory of reading between all the different commentaries, I think that that the the Brits and the the Yanks were well attuned to that, and they're ringing up going, this isn't going to look good if we can't sell trades, which got you down in the Credit Suisse case to two possible solutions. One was nationalization, and the other was... A, com- a commercial um, solution with UBS, and my my simple and this is now not bankers plumbing. This is now politics. My simple view of it was that nationalisation alone wasn't enough. That the message uh-huh. it would send wouldn't have been strong enough, and then the pressure was on that they needed something that looked vaguely commercial to send a strong message, which was the UBS solution. Um, you can philosophize on the last bit of that. That's that's really interpretation. But clearly, there was a big, big settlement problem because the, the central bank had to say to Credit Suisse, hey, we'll take collateral we wouldn't normally take, yeah, which happens from time to time in, in other jurisdictions too. And we'll arrange with the Fed to get a fistful of dollars versus Swiss francs, and then we'll sell them to you. So, but, yeah, they got waxed. What have you got? You got a run on the bank. Oh, you've got mismanagement run on the bank on the domestic side. You've got a crisis in the wholesale markets and you've got geopolitics playing in there. There you go. Yeah, I mean, getting hit from all sides, fair yeah, enough. Without a doubt. All of those, all, all yeah. of the above. 
Yeah, I think that um, what you said about the internet speeds playing a, a big part in some of these bank runs that we've seen lately, the the three S banks in the States as well as Credit Suisse, it's not queuing up around the block anymore. Like you said, it's uh, it's waking up and reading a tweet and deciding to pull all of your money on your mobile phone before you've even had your morning coffee. Yeah. Um, I, I know that you've been working on some of these newer digital projects like uh, you were involved with Finality before it yes. was Finality back when it was uh, a research project called Utility Settlement Coin. Um, I believe you've also done some work with RTGS Global. Um, how do you see some of these new digital providers making things safer now that we're moving towards a very high-speed, high-velocity environment with uh, with electronic and digital money? So the proposition behind both of those is that you create a system where all the balances are backed by funds that are at the central bank. That's one quality. The other quality is not only are they backed by funds at the central bank, but those funds are ring-fenced from the operating company. So to make this clear for anyone who's listening to this podcast, of course there was JPM coin. And oh boy, did they ever make a lot of noise about JPM coin. And... Jamie did decide it was a good idea to say that, well, we've got a fistful of dollars at the Fed. And he's right. At any given time, JP have indeed got quite a big fistful of dollars at the Fed. But if JP issued a billion JPM coin, even if JPM had five billion at the Fed, if something happens to JP, you have not got, if you're one of the JPM coin holders, you haven't got a claim on the five billion. You're an unsecured creditor like everybody else. So the whole, I, the, well, the original driver of the whole finality thing, what was the utility settlement coin project started with assets are going to be digitalized. They're going to be on chain. How do we pay on chain? And then the uh -huh. second thought that came into that was if we're going to pay on chain, let's pay with central bank money, which we know from the PFMI, the principles for financial market infrastructure is the preferred way of, of settling things at makes perfect sense um well, and that's that's what underlies the whole idea behind finality um now in finality's case assets on chain hasn't happened quite as fast as anybody would like um uh -huh. that's a slow train coming uh, as it goes and the same logic sits behind uh rtgs global that says now can we connect ledgers to make payments where everything's backed by central bank money. Um, both of them will work, actually. Um, from a technical point of view, great. Uh, then it comes down to um, interoperability in each case. Um, and interoperability, that's programmability. And that means, you now can my pile of cash interact with settlement mechanisms that need it? Um, and an example of that would be to do um, intraday trading. Now, let's let's take the Credit Suisse example we had earlier and try and project that to normal times. In normal times, Credit Suisse could take its collateral, go to see the Swiss National Bank and say, can we have some Swiss francs? And there's perfectly good repo arrangements for them to do that. And in fact, they can do intraday repo, they can do overnight repo, very standardized, very established, very well used. No matter how many Swiss francs Credit Suisse have got now, it's of no help if they need dollars now. Doesn't uh -huh. do them any good. And if we just ignore current events, the only possible way Credit Suisse could get their dollar payments made was to send lots of dollar payment instructions to their Nostro, the Bank of New York, and say, please make these, which resulted in overdrafts and all, all the rest of it. So now you can imagine there's an intraday marketplace and the new UBS goes along and says, great, I got a fistful of Swiss francs. I need some dollars. So I'll give Swiss francs as collateral I need dollars. And there's a bank on the other side. Let's pick Goldman Sachs because if, if there's a market around, Goldman Sachs would love to make a market. That's always true. Uh, Goldman uh, Sachs would go in and say, terrific. You know, we've got plenty of dollars because we got Marcus and we now got a nice deposit base. We'll rent you those dollars for the rest of the day, for the night, whatever. And we'll take Swiss as collateral. We'll do that trade now instantly and settle it. And we'll make sure uh, that Goldman has got dollars and UBS have got Swiss francs. 
and will debit those amounts and transfer them instantly in central bank money. Suddenly, everybody's really happy. UBS have swapped what they've got for what they need. That's great. It's happened instantly. There's no counterpart and credit risk. There's no delay. There's no use of overdrafts. So you've got to pick up on the balance sheet because you haven't got CCR, counterpart and credit risk. You've got to pick up because you haven't got liquidity buffers to support all the overdrafts. Everybody's happy. And I can tell you categorically, if you go and see a treasurer, go, treasurer, would you rather rely on overdrafts from your Nostro or would you rather trade and pay variable costs as you go? They'll pay variable costs as you go. And if you then say, uh-huh. I've got this great new intraday marketplace so you can trade as late as you like, there's optionality. You don't have to trade early. You can trade late. You give any trader optionality, they'll take it all day long. So you can see where we can get to um, with with both of those things. Um, it just uh, it, in in both cases, whether it's a finality or a RTGS, you're creating a payment system. Our payment system is an FMI. There's a whole bunch of approval processes going along with it. Uh, finality, by design, wanted to be on chain and use decentralized okay. systems. Decentralized is admirable because it helps with single points of failure and so on. But as soon as you had the word chain in it, that of course meant, you know, there was a whole load of more questions being asked inevitably, you know, that we, we do entrust the central bankers with uh, being cautious, even if sometimes yeah. that uh, we can criticize them being overcautious. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of approval processes going around these FMIs, most of it, you know, for the good. I and mean, we can philosophize about delays and all the rest. And we need to put those those things in place and i will add that it won't help us if we have multiple solutions in each currency yeah you don't need Um, a cbdc and a finality and an rtgs in dollars that's yeah i think that's probably fair to say um but that brings me to another point cbdc wholesale and retail two separate things yeah but uh how is cbdc going to live alongside privately issued currencies once let's assume that uh we've got cbdc wallets um you've got in the euro i think you've got a limit of three thousand uh here in the uk i think we're looking at 10 to twenty thousand. but i mean the economy also needs commercial bank money which is where the commercial bank deposit token idea has says ah. kind of caught on and jp morgan who you mentioned earlier have uh, released some papers around this but how are these different types of digital money going to live alongside each other? So I think the uh, on the retail side, you what you'd see is you'd see that retail take a big wallet share, no pun intended, um, because it, you know it's guaranteed money. Um, now not everybody is going to get a wallet. Um, you saw this thing in China where they did the experiments that you can have it as long as you've got a bank account, but you can't have a bank account unless you resident and so on. So uh, chances are that retail won't serve all the purposes that that are there. I can I can see why you do it. Although, you know, if I hop back to what one of our local regulators here said, uh, Andrea Metler, who's one of the uh, the three in the office of the chairman of the, of the SMB, yes. We have no need for it, retail CBDC whatsoever. None of the none of the benefits are things we have problems with here. The only one you could point to would be geopolitical. It says, you know, if this stuff's going to happen, let's make sure we own the tech. Because uh, it's really bad if you're reliant on foreign on foreign powers. Just go and ask the go and ask the Germans about gas. Oh yeah, perhaps it wasn't such a good idea to cozy up to the Russians. So I, I get the I, I get the geopolitical thing on on retail, and you'll get some of it. Um, and the, the alternative is private money. That private equivalent could be a stable coin. And there's nothing a priori wrong with stable coins. You just got to be sure what the promise is. Is the promise reduction of par? And if it is, is it properly regulated and behaving? You know, uh, are you behaving more like USDC and Circle than you are like Tether? That is a very broad charge and a gap between the two. So, in that sense, those could coexist. I think in the wholesale, 
in the wholesale thing, it would be really difficult if the things coexisted. Uh, you know, although you know, payment systems, you know, you've got the Fed wire and that competes with TCH and chips. Uh, you've got uh, Fed now, which will compete with real-time payments and the same in Europe, which I actually think is a bad thing. I don't see how you can simultaneously be a regulator and a, and a payment system operator. But that's wrong. Huh. I, they, they fail to uh, have good governance in, in those cases. Um, so if you want a CBDC, great uh, for wholesale. Go ahead and do it. Um, but then make it very clear you're doing it so that the private sector doesn't waste its time trying to do the do the equivalent. Uh, and then you know, the finalities and RTS digesters of this world will do what they're what they're going to do. Uh, I would with my bankers plumbers hat on, I'd say that a benign monopoly in each currency is a good thing. Um would get into the economics and textbooks and all the rest of it. Um, but it's certainly no good if you fragment liquidity, uh, which will help us neatly when we get onto the discussion of tokenized deposits. You know, if I, if I'm operating and using finality for dollars, and you're using RTGS for dollars, the twain ain't going to meet too easily. And in fact, um, I was talking with uh, somebody we know with with uh, Chris Ostrowski at Soda Public Money beforehand. I gave the answer because he was talking about interoperability and level ones and what have you. And I said, you know, this is the same as CCPs, central counterparts. For years, we had central counterparts. And if the two of us wanted to do business, both of us had to be members of the same club. And then there was uh, a bit of noise about, well, what happens if we want to be members of different clubs? To which the first answer was, well, that will be really difficult. And then the second answer was, well, we should have interoperability. We only tackled that one years, years after we'd had CCPs. So to go from uh, a world of nothing to interoperability is like, Pwah. you know, how's how's that going? We don't even know how the basic thing is going to work. So how are we going to get excited about that? So I I just don't see how in wholesale you could have readily have interoperability between different solutions. Okay. So I guess here in the UK, we've heard from the Bank of England uh, in a couple of speeches that, you know, the private sector is doing good things in terms of uh, the finalities and the RTGS globals yep. and that maybe there's maybe there's no need for a wholesale CBDC and the, the bank's own RTGS systems undergoing renewal. And they've now said that things like distributed ledgers will be able to plug into it. So it seems like the the wholesale side is moving along at least here in the UK, quite quite yep. well, without a CBDC. The bank, however, is very keen on on issuing a retail CBDC. And we've uh, we've seen, I think they're hiring 30 people for their CBDC yep. team here in the UK. Uh, and you mentioned earlier that, you know, stable coins are n not necessarily a, a bad thing from anyone's point of view. And the bank has said uh, that they're open to the idea of people backing stable coins one for one, with their central bank reserves or or treasuries, uh, w what have you, none of that creates new money, uh, which you know we need for the economy. JPM coin, on the other hand, does do that. Yes. So, so the the JPM coins of the world have now started to to put their arms up and wave and say, we're doing tokenized deposits. Tokenized deposits are good because there's a risk of uh, you know commercial bank disintermediation, which would be bad for the economy because we need things like mortgages and business loans. Yeah. What's the, what's the problem with tokenized bank deposits in the way that they've been presented to right. date? So uh, completely with that, oh, we do need the two tier, and that's the whole um, so-called run risk that goes with this that says, if everyone's got access to the risk-free asset, they'll go buy it. And that's the whole financial stability, monetary policy. And I had the delights of writing a very thick paper on all of that uh, finality, the private paper, uh, working with good friend Daniel Heller from his XSMB. And that's tough stuff to explain all of. So I, I get all of that. Now, the, my problem with tokenized deposits is how it have you got what the BIS refer to as the singleness of money? Um, uh -huh. And the way I look at this, it can be okay today. If you pay me some money, 
you pay some money to my account at let's say my business account a credit it's still a credit suisse um i've got an unsecured receivable on credit suisse and everything goes in that pot if however you sent me some ubs tokens and somebody else sent me some tokens from the zkb one of the other banks here so you send me 200 somebody sends me from zkb 100 yeah in total i've got 300 but they're not fungible there's not singleness uh -huh. of money if i now had to go and pay 250 to chris ostrovsky i'd have to ring him up and say chris you know i owe you 250 well i got some ubs coins and i got some zkb coins if he did his business properly and being chris he probably would he'd have to do real-time risk management on all of that and go well hang on have i got enough room to take that risk of course okay. if it was only 200 or 100 the answer is he probably has but if we do this as per the textbook he's going to turn around at one point and go no 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 no, i don't want any more uvs coins can't take okay. them and if you just think about how absurd this thing has been in the normal course of events i just bang out a payment i pay him 250 he's happy you know probably does not touch the sides hot knife through butter whatever you want to do it's all reasonably stp i don't have to call chris and chat about football or whatever and then which coins he's going to accept and all yeah that model doesn't scale it just uh -huh. doesn't scale so i completely get why jp created jp coin perfectly good new rail inside of jp fantastic and they like all other large institutions i'm sure their um, payments infrastructure was somewhat old and was probably programmed in COBOL and they had to come up with a new thing and somebody said we the programmers want to do blockchain what the hell you know knock yourselves out guys go do the new sexy stuff because if that makes you happy and jp can do stuff 724 and everything using this new rail and it's great if you and i've got accounts at jp terrific you know debit kenny credit oh that's marvelous no problem at all doesn't mm. matter whether they process it in jpm coin or on their lexi systems whatever works perfectly well i think mean, but as soon as you try and move that jp coin outside of jp it's the same as tokenized deposits somebody's got to do the whole real-time risk management stuff on it now if it were to be backed with central bank money a whole bunch of stuff's got to happen because if you think about it um you know jp has a lot of money at the fed but if the music stops everybody's an unsecured creditor so uh -huh. jp would have to have the ability to for the sake of argument create a sub account at the fed and say great we've issued 100 jp coins there's 100 in the sub account and that sub account is ring fenced and bankruptcy remote from all the other things that jp do so that if anything happens anyone who's holding the 100 jp coins collectively they can go see the administrator and go ah mr administrator collectively we'd like our assets yeah, and city could do the same etc cetera, etc cetera. and then they would be fungible so a lot of ifs in that and a lot of stuff that would have to happen which is practically you know, what finality has proposed as a common enterprise across all the banks so i'd look at that mm -hmm. and go what's smart here does it make sense to create one thing in each currency yes because we've already established that if we fragment things it's not good do we really need to create a JP ring-fenced coin, a city ring-fenced coin, the Wells Fargo ring-fenced coin? You know, if it's Wells Fargo, they're probably going to issue seven times as many things because their track record says that no, they're not particularly good at their controls. You know, so are you really going to trust? Are you going to trust Wells Fargo that they didn't issue seven times as many uh, Wells Fargo coins as they've got actual amount of money in the bank? Yeah, it, it is slightly funny. We're grinning on this, but based on their track record you know you might ask some questions so i kind of rest my case on tokenized deposits and go so far i sure as hell am not convinced it's just uh -huh. it's just um overhead problems difficulties doesn't doesn't work for me so one model where i think that the tokenized deposits are you know very interesting and could uh come come to light 
in a way that's more congruent with the existing two-tier system. The regulated liability network. Um, Tony McLaughlin from Citibank came out with this idea. I think uh, we're seeing uh, Settle and Digital Asset implement the trial uh, in in, uh, the states with the New York Fed at the minute. And I think uh, eight eight big banks. And to be perfectly honest, we're working on something somewhat along the same lines as the RLN uh, at at Millicent. And I think that that is a really interesting idea, which fits in with the the Bank of England's thinking that the CBDC is needed to anchor the money. You need the public money that anchors the the privately issued money. And that is what gives the singleness that you mentioned to from from the BIS. So the RLN has that that idea and that model. But I've seen you've written on I see your hand shaking as well. You've seen that you you wrote on uh, on social media a couple of times that the thinking behind the RLN isn't quite mature yet. And I would like to dive into that. Yeah. What do you mean by that statement? Well, it would be mature based on the number of hours Tony spent talking about it, um, for sure, because he's taught this thing to death. Uh, we, we're good mates, so I'll, I'll make I'll make that that that, that joke in, uh, in in very good faith. Um, it looks to me from the initial designs, like in the ledger system, you can mix commercial bank money and central bank money. So the whole idea is Citibank can effectively put in a subledger and go, great, there's a subledger that exists on this RLN network. And let's just imagine um, at some point that the balances on that city subledger where Kenny's account has plus 20 and Olaf's account has minus 20. In isolation, and these things are never in isolation, but in isolation, according to the textbook, City would have zero money at the central bank. I'd be like, happy, you've got 20, I've got minus 20, what the hell? The ledger balances. Great. Now, let's go back to the example we had earlier about intraday money markets. And now it's FX markets and swaps. So you want that UBS thing to go and do a a swap with Wells Fargo over on the other side of the trade. If that Fintia machinery that's the marketplace goes and knocks on the door of RLN and it says, has Kenny got any money? That 20 is commercial bank money. There's not necessarily 20 at the central bank. And at which point you've kind of, uh, to use an English expression, you've confused the scorers. It's not quite clear what I'm getting. Am I getting an IOU from Citi? Or am I getting central bank money? So if every single balance on the RLN system was backed up one-to-one with money at the central bank, which is ring-fenced, both from the the bank that issued it and all the other operations, everything, so that everybody who's got the the balances or coins, whatever you want to call them, can make a collective claim on the collateral. Terrific. If that's not the case and it's not clear, then it hasn't helped very much. That's uh, yeah. That's an interesting view. I mean, I in it's also somewhat similar to to the existing system in that um, you know the, if the money's not always backed one to one, the commercial bank money isn't always backed one to one. So so you can have a run on the RLN. You could have a similar situation where the partition for the central bank money is completely separate, and that people can issue more because things aren't always going to balance out commercial bank tokens than they do, uh, let's say, wholesale tokens. So I think that that's the the basic model of, of what uh, Tony's proposing, which on the surface, I think makes pretty good sense to me. What I don't understand is how payment stable coins come into the equation. Um, I guess because they're going to be one-to-one and they're, again is that ch- risk of disintermediation unless the the commercial bankers can pay you interest that nobody's doing at the moment anyways what's the benefit of holding money with a commercial bank over uh, a stablecoin issuer that's essentially a synthetic central bank digital currency um if you are yeah you need to get some reward for hold for holding the stuff there and yeah, generally you you've got access to the whole network that that is the bank so you're you're getting your all your payments and everything else um flowing through there and 
You know, if I think of my business in Switzerland, I could get anybody to pay me. It's fine. They can just pay me money to the business account at Credit Suisse and it would turn up. So there's a singleness of of everything that's in there. And, you know, if you've got a stable coin, that's not necessarily the case. And then you, as a business, you've got to keep track of, well, I got some money at Credit Suisse and I got some stable coins and and so on. So, uh, you know, that could fragment liquidity. My, My take on stable coins is they got, they got their day in the sunshine because of crypto. Uh-huh. And they were solely there because if you sold crypto and you wanted to get out of the action for a little while, if you put all the money back to the fiat banking system, it's too far back. You kind of couldn't get back on. And I, I liken this to playing ice hockey. You know, ice hockey players don't spend too long on the ice. They, they you know, very intense while they're there and they get off. If an ice hockey player took his skates off, it will be kind of hard to get back on the ice quickly, right? So the the equivalent yeah. of not taking your skates off was sitting on a sitting on a stable coin, which no matter how much you philosophized about it, was better than taking your skates off. Maybe uh-huh. until you got super scared and you looked at Tether's books, but you know there was an advantage um, in doing that. And that's where I saw the the stable coins making uh, a, a name for themselves. Um, I can see how private solutions like useful, um, and then in order to avoid this whole problem of disintermediating the banks, you kind of have to. I think you have, you need to distinguish between intraday for settlement purposes and overnight. So one of the things uh, we grappled with when I was at Finality is, well, how do you how do you sort of say, well, great. Um, Lloyd is a member of the UK, whether they want to keep money at Finality or at the Bank of England, it's the same. It's, it's the same impact on uh, financial stability and uh, monetary policy. But what about if uh, Comets Bank wants to keep a bunch of pounds? Uh, to which the answer is, yeah, that's it's at that point that it gets a little bit awkward. Um, and then you have uh, to find ways to say, well, you know, what should Commerce Bank do at the end of the day so that they're not sitting on these pounds and causing problems? And then there are actually plenty of uh, avenues for them to do something. They could do a, a reverse repo, take in securities, rent out the money and so on. So I, I think it's it's useful for settlement purposes to have very wide access that during the day, Everybody can hold the balances, and then you 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 kind of put your financial stability thing uh, at the end of the day to say, well, not everybody can have access to the risk-free asset overnight. Uh, is my uh, my take on how to how to deal with those things, and then hopefully that doesn't disintermediate the commercial banks. And increasingly, I don't think that actually I don't think the commercial banks want a role in transaction banking largely. Um, I just, with one of the other mandates I have right now, you know, setting up a fintech in Switzerland. And you call up some banks well, and go, no, would you like to be the correspondent bank for this new fintech? No. No interest at all. Don't want to do that. Hell, oh, yeah, where am I going to get some access to these different rails? So, I mean, in fact, we need to provide new avenues to allow this settlement stuff to happen. Because that's what we were talking about. So, it wasn't. We as a fintech don't want a whole massive dollar balances or whatever overnight with clients, but we need some of it, and that's difficult with the transaction banking environment. Hmm. So, I guess wrapping up here, let's uh, let's run through a few quick fire exercises. You talked about game sh- game shows a little bit before we 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 jumped on and hit record. So, wholesale digital currencies. What are we going to see in the next five years? How's that going to play out? Um, doesn't strike me that any of the majors are in a hurry to do it. Uh, could happen in in minor currencies because they want to be uh, a bit more accessible. So I think you'd expect the likes of a Finality, possibly an RTGS, to, to play out in one way or the other in, in the next five. Okay. Um, so you see emerging markets as the first at bat with these new technologies then? Well, possibly with the CBDC side, 
as long as there are solutions for the majors. So if you go to, I was just down in Africa, one of my clients is there and I was visiting, and all of the African institutions want to swap local currency for dollars. But the only, because it's a swap, the only people who take the credit risk are the South African banks. This is not, this is not a, a trade secret of any kind. This is like, it happens every day. And then yeah. the South Africans need to turn around and refinance themselves through RAND into dollars. And that whole process is not very slick because it's like, geez, well, uh -huh. I've got to get somebody to deliver me some Botswana and Pillau. And if I see that, then I've got to go and get the dollars from over here. And then I got to give them the dollars. There's counterpart credit risk in there because you've got to swap. So you don't do much business. So there's business going begging. On their own, though, an African currency creating CBDC is not much use without dollars, pounds, and euros. So we've got this interesting sort of catch-22 situation. Um, who moves first to, to get this thing along? If we've got an answer to the majors, we can then go to the minors for one of the, and I, I don't use the term in any derogatory way, but the, the minor currency, and say, hey, if you solve this, you can connect to this. And it's worth your making the investment because you could now do more business in the way that we were talking about earlier in, in, in wholesale markets and intraday liquidity trading and so on. Cool. All right. So that actually leads into a good question. Do you think there's going to be a shift in what the major global currencies look like over the next, let's say, 10 years? Are we going to see a shift to a more multipolar uh, <laughs> world economic environment? Funny that. My wife asked me this morning while I wanted to read an article that was in our local paper, the NZZ, on the dollar will be hard to shift. I said, I didn't have any time. I should have prepared better for the question. <laughs> um, I, I think I'll take that one easy. It's very hard to shift the dollar. You can hear from Asia there's a lot of desire to do corridors that don't cross the dollar. Um, the answer to that is possibly um, that's there. But then to go and create all the mechanisms just to do those corridors feels like there's not enough volume. So theoretically, there's business to be had, but it's insignificant volume to justify creating a great big new process to do these things. So just don't see how you dislodge the dollar that quickly would be my summary uh -huh. answer. Now I'll go away and read the, uh, my text you a better answer if I go away and read the article. Fair Fair enough, I'll, I'll update the show notes down below. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, we're seeing a lot of news about de-dollarization, but um, I think that that type of news does tend to pop up once every 10 years or so. Um, and the yeah. dollar hasn't really gone anywhere in a while. But uh, it is interesting to see some of the, the headlines that are coming out. So it's something I'm keeping half an eye on. Um, right. Retail digital currencies. What am I going to be paying with in five years' time? What's my app on my phone going to look like under the hood? I um, feel like the Brits will get there, actually. And um, looking at what John Conniff had to say, there's like, and it, my sense reading between the lines of what Conniff is saying is like, you know, these things take time to build. So I'm going to make the commitment to build it now. I'll, I'll take the risk of being wrong. But I'm not worried about it. I'm more worried if I hadn't built anything and I need it to because I can't do it quickly. Uh, and if you look around, particularly you know, having had the experience at Penalty, uh, if you compare how easy is it to talk to the, the Brits, the Yanks, and the Europeans, the Brits were front and central and trying to do things, trying to move forward. So it may no longer be the world's biggest currency, um, but London is incredibly innovative. The bank is very supportive. And I think um, it's what Cunliffe has announced is, is great. So look, yeah, we'll, t we'll take a chance on this, see where it goes. Um, yeah, certainly if John Cunliffe's got anything to do with it, we'll certainly do it in a controlled way that's not going to go you know, totally wrong. So um, I, I could see us... Um, using that in the uk you know in my home country here in switzerland are we going to do anything no not uh -huh. not just just not gonna happen i think uh in any time soon uh because even if we put up our hands and try to have some people's movement to get us a retail swiss franc 
just to put it to we'd have to put it to a vote we did like a vote over here not not happening anytime anytime soon and what about the states um if i if i just the only benchmark no the only benchmark i've got is my finality experience where were the americans compared to the brits uh, and they just seemed at least a couple of years behind um well for doing that um after all we are talking about an advanced country where they still use checks yes yes yeah advanced We're country in, well, checks, i guess in the same sentence seems to be like weird uncle sam by the way did send my son um who was born in america some nice checks for covid relief and included and he went check for a dollar as well it's so, it's so, it's 50 bucks to cash a check here and to give you an idea of what happens in an advanced country he went down to the local branch of uvs where he has his account and said i've got this check from uncle sam i'd like to deposit in my account and the young gentleman behind the counter was my son who's nearly 25 what's that it's a check okay, i don't know what to do with one of these he had to call the branch manager down here in our village to go and what do i do with it so you know given where they're starting from is it likely that the Americans can be as smart and quick as the Brits? Nah, don't see it. Just, just don't see how they, how it's going to happen. Technically, now they've got plenty of brains, and plenty of money. No, but just looking at all the things that have gone before, you're still using checks. You know, real-time payments. Everybody else had real-time payments down long before. So I just. No, no, no. Okay, and Hong Kong, Singapore—they seem to be more open to, I guess, the digital currency side, both public and private. Um, I guess for, for me personally, I see that slowness to adopt new technologies because of, I guess, the comfort of being the dollar is potentially one of the bigger risks than uh, any kind of political collusion that uh, people talk about when it comes to to the dollar losing its role. Um, I know that, you know, there's a lot more than payment rails and checks behind the reason why the dollar is important, but it is interesting to see other people innovating and uh, some regulators and, and politicians in America really putting their foot on the brakes where it feels like it's their lead to lose, especially with dollar-denominated stablecoins having 99.5% of the global stablecoin market, for example. Yes, I, I think it, it, it's, it's exactly that, that, that you could, you could sh show some leadership. And, but it, it feels a bit like change in banks, right? If I, I've been inside banks, and banks have, got, banks have got two project books. There's one project book, which is the must-do stuff, mandatory, regulated, and there's discretionary. So they always do the mandatory stuff, although inevitably with the mandatory stuff, they try to do as little as possible, as late as possible, and promise to improve everything in version two, but you know, like Manyana, it never comes. And the rest is discretionary. And it's very difficult to get shot for not doing something. Yeah. Right? You won't be in that job in a couple of years. So I think it's very easy for some of these regulators and you know, staffers at big government institution nah we're not going to do that it's exactly the same with the banks not investing in infrastructure um oh. and, and some of it by the way is quite hard um just to, to close with the credit swiss example their ledger system is called bs70 booking system 70 and their securities processing is called ws80 metro which is securities system uh, 80 these refer to the years of their birth Yes. And I assume both are coded in COBOL, which was invented Correct. in, I don't know, 19, 1959, I think. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, there's all of these inertia things, but it, fundamentally, whether you're inside a big bank or even when you're at the, the Fed and all these places, it's very hard to get shot for not doing something. And it, as you rightly said, you know, the dollar has got all this dominance. Um, people have tried to ride its obituary and fill in the time of death. Um, they've been great. Rumors of the death have been greatly exaggerated to cause a, to coin a phrase. So there's not any 
real sense of urgency. Whereas I think you've got, if I just look at uh, all the things that the Bank of England have done, the things they've done cooperating with Finality to, to, to change some of the policies, how the Bank of England works with the Treasury, you know, how Congress mm-hmm. particularly has been front and center in saying you know, these are things we're going to do. You're just not seeing that in the States. Um, so, yeah, it's it, yeah. kind of unfortunate. And, you know, maybe they end up as the frog in the, the water that's heating up um, with these things. Uh, but, you know, and they'd have all the brains um, going um, to do this and do this in a, 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 in a sensible way. Uh, but the, the wheels of politics over there grind in mysterious ways. I was in Switzerland just yeah, I do think that <laughs> Here in the UK, I think we're we're in a good place in that, um, like you say, finality has been, uh, you know, cautiously embraced might be the, the yeah, correct term to use. Yes. I mean, um, on, you know, the, tre- the Treasury uh, recognized them as an official payment system uh, yep. last year. The Bank of England rolled out the omnibus account system. Um, the RTGS renewal is openly said we can connect to technologies like distributed ledger technology. So all them they're moving in the right direction. And I think, you know, London certainly realizes its financial services scene is what makes London London these days and a, a big important part of the economy here. Yeah. Uh the 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 Europeans moving ahead with the digital euro. Um slightly different perspective or or take on things than than here in the uk but uh in all in all it's a it's an interesting landscape and something to keep an eye on but uh i think we're running short of time all right uh, i'd love to have you on it love to have you on again uh plug we'll the book before location. we go all right that's uh, i know you've got a book out uh, i'd i'll put a link in the uh in the show notes about where nice. to find your book on amazon um, and thanks for, for taking the time to, to talk to me today. Absolute pleasure to, to think about these things because there's, you know, there's always stuff you're missing and you, you refine the thinking. So it's, it's great to have an opportunity to chew on these, these matters as we try and figure out how to do better tomorrow. Reinvent is brought to you by Millicent Labs, building the financial infrastructure of tomorrow, where the power of Web3 meets the simplicity of fiat. Learn more at millicent.io. Uh-huh.